Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In today's episode, Chloe and I talk with Cody Jussel. Cody works with adaptive athletes in both CrossFit and Pilates. And with Cody, we talk about the history of the Paralympics and what the para means in Paralympics. We talk about how just the, some of the mechanics of how to work with adaptive clients in a Pilates context. Um, and also, also uh, just discuss the body's amazing adaptability and some of the really cool things being done by adaptive athletes around the world and how you can uh, find out more about that. So all that plus a bunch more coming up. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Ralph. How are you going? Fucking awesome. <laughs> what, a, what a way to start. Hey, Cody. Hi, Chloe. Nice to have you here. I've been very excited about this. It's really awesome to be here. I am also super excited. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge Cody fan, so this is uh, Cody on the potty, yes. Mm. <laughs> hey, can we do a real quick, because uh, I was just talking to, I've been talking to some of our UK and Europe-based um, students and podcast listeners recently, and one of the things that uh, I've learned is that um, we're kind of over the top, like enthusiastic, everything's awesome, everything's amazing, because if you're British, it's more like, how are you? Like, oh yeah, not too bad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so can we do the more like okay look can we do like the european edition um podcast intro yeah sure hey chloe how's it going i'm all right ralph <laughs> hey Katie, good? what's up very <laughs> 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 good not bad yeah. you know there, there's shabby. other things i could be doing now but this will do <laughs> <laughs> shout out to our european <laughs> listeners we love you Oh, sorry. We don't hate you too much. <laughs> Your love's a bit over the top, Raph. <laughs> You're all right. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's that's way more fun than fucking awesome. I'm down with it. Yeah, because it's only. Do you know what? We can only go up from here. Mm. So I think I think maybe that we're fucking awesome peaks too early. So you know, this is maybe this is maybe a, a new thing. Right, Put me down where, a couple of let's times. See where it takes us. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Cody, can you uh, introduce yourself to the folks at home and just share with you know share with us whatever it is that you want to share about who you are and what you do? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so, I am in Santa Cruz, California, um, and I. I've taught Pilates uh, in various locations in different capacities for about 15 years. Um, I recently was, um, <laughs> I feel like, forced to open my own studio is like not the exact way I want to say it. But 
<laughs> COVID has like ushered me in this direction of um, having opened my own studio in the last year. year and and is your studio uh, at home? Is it? It is. Your, it is right. That's so yeah. Cool. Yeah. Which is like kind of the coolest thing. I Raph, when you say you're like living your best life in lockdown, I also feel a very similar way. <laughs> Where I was like, I feel like, um, you know, I'm a little bit of an introvert by nature. And so like hunkering down at home was right in my nature. Um, but it also like kind of, you know, thrust me in this direction of, of opening my home studio and like primarily working online uh, for the most part in the initial phases of COVID. Um, and like now I never want to go back. <laughs> you know, it's it's. Um, uh, like I love working from home. I love working steps from my refrigerator, <laughs> you know, snacks available all the time. <laughs> Most important thing. <laughs> um, but also just like doing something uh, that I didn't think I was really ready for. I didn't even really know that I ever wanted to do, which was have my own space. Um, so that's been really cool to explore. Um, and it's just me in my house, which gets lonely and I'm so excited to also be a trainee trainer for Breathe Education because um, I feel like now I'm also a part of a community of people and not just like alone by myself, which feels really good. Um, yeah, so I, um, I went through uh, a couple Pilates training programs and then um, felt like... Well, really, I'm just kind of a junkie for school, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, like just, you know, going, getting certification after certification after certification. But um, it did prompt me to want to get my master's in uh, kinesiology, which I did a few years ago. Um, and I focused in orthopedic rehab and adaptive sports. Um which was kind of like the doorway that just opened my world to um, adaptive athletics. Um, my The woman who created the program um, at uh, my graduate school was um, a physical therapist for the Paralympics in Rio, I think in 2016. Um, and as far as I know, it's the only program, graduate program in kinesiology in the country for adaptive sports. Um, and because she was really focused in the Paralympics, uh, the focus of the program was really centered around the Paralympics um, and kind of like Paralympic classification and just like the general workings of um, how that system works, Paralympic history, the Paralympic movement. But, you know, we got a lot of like just basic um kind of like you know this is this is what she was giving examples of like this is what she does when she works and trains with adaptive athletes um and so it was a lot of like very much like the the diploma program that breathe does it's you know a lot of like so you have you know this hypothetical adaptive client like build a program for them what would you do and you know just kind of drawn out into a much longer, um, a two-year program. Um, so that was really my introduction to working with adaptive athletes. 
Um, and then simultaneously, I got involved in CrossFit. Um, and CrossFit is one of, I mean, I'm, I might be misstating this, but one of the <coughs> most um, inclusive forms or inclusive modalities that I've encountered that um, is not just inclusive of everybody, but is specifically inclusive of the adaptive community. Um, and so when I was doing my master's program and, and like kind of just entering into this sphere of, um, you know, what is an adaptive athlete, I was also entering into um, this new sphere, new to me sphere of CrossFit, where they were saying like, hey, we're making programs for adaptive athletes. And that was really, um, it made me want to get more involved in CrossFit, along with it being like the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and so that's kind of how I, and then there, you know, there's a, a little network of um, Pilates folks in the Bay Area who are doing some really neat stuff with adaptive athletes. Um, and so all of those things were kind of swirling around in my world at the same time. Um, and that kind of thrust me in the direction that I am still currently following, which is working with adaptive athletes, um, being involved in CrossFit, being involved in Pilates, um, and kind of that's where all of those potentially unlikely worlds collide for me. <laughs> it's um, it's so cool, Cody. It really, I hadn't been exposed much to adaptive athletes apart from you know watching the Paralympics, etc. <clears throat> but not in the sense of you know the CrossFit Games or working with clients in a Pilates setting. And you really, you and your social media and, and what you're putting, uh, you know, what you're putting up in your Insta stories, et cetera, uh, really sparked my my interest and kind of opened up a, a new world to me, which I'm excited for you to open up for, for I'm sure this is going to be the same for a lot of our listeners. And uh, when you tagged the page, I am adaptive, that that page for me, so that's on Instagram, I am adaptive. And I do believe we might have um, mentioned that in an earlier podcast after I came across it, thanks to Cody. And it really just blew my mind on just how epic human beings are and what they're capable of is freaking phenomenal. I think what would be really helpful, um, which I know it was really helpful for me and also for the training team, our breathe education training team, Cody, was when you gave us a little, you know, a talk about like, what is the definition of adaptive? Because it's not a term, I know it might be a term that's used quite regularly in uh, the States, but I, uh, most of us in Australia hadn't heard that term before. So could you give us a little, could you flesh that out a little? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so the way that we refer to adaptive in the States or what we mean when we say adaptive in the States is um, somebody who has a permanent impairment. Um, and that could be like spinal cord injury. It could be an acquired impairment as in like, you know, you got into an accident um, and acquired a spinal cord injury or um needed to have an amputation and acquired a uh, limb loss. Um, but the definition uh, 
according to law in the United States is that it's a permanent impairment, but then that also translates into how we classify people for competitive sport in um, adaptive athletics is that to qualify, um, you know, it's not like, oh yeah, I had a knee replacement this year and um, I, you know, I don't quite have full range of motion left or don't have full range of motion yet. Um, And so I, you know, I'm going to classify myself as adaptive Um, for sport and competitive sport. It needs to be a permanent impairment. Um, And is it neurological as well? So it's either physical, is that that's right? So, um, for instance, correct. Yeah, it could be so physical as well as neurological. Um, And so neuroadaptive athlete is a whole category or whole classification of athletes that then have um, kind of sub classifications within the neuroadaptive division. So um, a neuroadaptive athlete might be somebody who has a spinal cord injury. Right. Okay. A neuroadaptive athlete might also be somebody who has um, CP, uh, cerebral palsy, uh-huh. or somebody who um, has multiple sclerosis. Right or traumatic brain injury, all of those things would be um, classified in a neuroadaptive category, like if we were going to classify those things in a sporting context or a competitive context. Um, And then I think... And so when I was giving the presentation for the um, Breathe training team, I was trying to kind of, you know... I. I realized as I was developing the the presentation that my perspective was very um, U.S. centered, and I was like, "Well, obviously there might be different laws <laughs> uh, about accessibility or um, you know disability based discrimination um, in Australia." And so what I found is that Australia has a much broader classification of adaptive that doesn't necessarily include um or it it doesn't need to be a permanent impairment for the sake of the law but i believe that that you know if you're from australia and you're an adaptive athlete competing in the paralympics it still needs to be a permanent impairment but yeah wow and so Cody, can you give us, I mean, what I loved about, I feel like a lot of listeners are going to be like, oh, I wish I was at that presentation. It was a really good presentation. Um, A++++. I really loved the history because I had no idea about the history of the Paralympics and how that started with that one particular doctor. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, it's a really neat, history that I also like didn't know a lot about um, before I started my master's program. Um, but the Paralympics started as um, I believe they were called like the first Paralympic Games was called the wheelchair games <clears throat> and it was held in 1954 um, as, uh, like a local kind of uh, expression of how this one doctor was, and I, I'm totally like spacing his name and I'd have to look up his name for you. <laughs> um, but I know it starts with a G. Um, he we'll was primarily working with, what was that? 
We'll just call him we'll Dr. Just, J. Yeah, Dr. Dr. G. G. Perfect. Dr. J. Dr. J <laughs> was a legend. Um, he was working with um, neuroadaptive athletes, which they were just called, I think, neuroathletes or athletes with a spinal cord injury. I'm not exactly sure how uh, he referred to people with a disability. Um, they were all in a wheelchair. Um at a hospital called Stokes Mandeville Hospital. Um, and he believed that he had this very like forward thinking view of rehabilitation. Um, and he kind of took a very biopsychosocial approach to rehabilitation where he, you know, it wasn't just kind of like fixing um fixing a person and I'm having a little air quotes here because mm-hmm. it's a, a pretty dated uh, way to <laughs> to think about um, our interactions with adaptive athletes right uh, but he felt like um, you know the social aspects of rehabilitation were just as important as the physical and medical aspects of rehabilitation so you know person's happiness and their social interaction with um, other people was just as important as, um, you know, like the ability to walk again, potentially. And so he created the wheelchair games um, and they were super small at first. And as they progressed and became a little bit more popular, they were um, developed to be the parallel Olympics or run in parallel to the Olympics. Um, and that's what Paralympics means is parallel Olympics. Um, and they developed into this, uh, worldwide competition of, um, several, like including several different classifications of adaptive athletes. Um, and, I believe that the 2020 Paralympics had a total viewership of 4.25 billion people worldwide. Yeah, which is huge. Um, And, you know, I feel like he was really able to create um, a really forward-thinking idea of... of what um, being a Paralympian, or it wasn't called Paralympians then, but um, of being an adaptive athlete, um, where, you know, the the Paralympics eventually was, is this incredible showcase of elite athleticism in the adaptive community. Um, There's some really, really awesome old footage of the Stoke Mandeville Mm. games that you can find on YouTube that's like freely available. Um, and just little snippets of kind of the, those initial ideas that built the Paralympics is, is really amazing. Really neat. Mm -hmm. I think it got, uh, most of our team quite emotional watching that old footage. It was pretty incredible. Raf's found, uh, the doctor's name. Haven't you, Raf? There we go. Dr. Ludwig, Sir Ludwig Gutmann. According to Google. That's the one. Dr. G. Dr. G. Dr. Dr. G. What a forward-thinking legend, really. I mean, wow. What a game changer. Super cool. Super cool. 
Hey, Cody, there's a couple of things that I wanted to double-click on in what you said there. Um, I think where I'd like to first ask about is, okay, so working with adaptive athletes, so these are elite athletes, you know, you you work with them in uh, a CrossFit context and also within a Pilates realm. So what can what can you share with, you know, regular Pilates instructors who might work with you know, non-athletes who maybe have a limb amputation or a neurological, you know, impairment or whatever it might be? Mm. You know, how what can you share with, with with the rest of us on how to just accommodate and challenge and, and work with those those folk? Yeah, that's a great question. Because um, I think the majority of us um, are going to not necessarily work with elite athletes, right? We're going to work with kind of the everyday person. Um, and so what I would say, number one, is that um, there is no, like, there's no box that you need to fit into, right? There's no right way <laughs> to work with an adaptive athlete. Um, and much like our guidelines for the general population, able-bodied people, um, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to break anybody, <laughs> right? And, um, the guidelines that you use with able-bodied people are the same guidelines that you would use with adaptive athletes, meaning like a client walks into your studio and you want to set goals with them, right? You want to collaborate with them. Um, you want to build strength the same way that you would build strength with an able-bodied person, right? I think that those, at least for me, when I started working with uh, adaptive movers, that there was a lot of fear around, um, like, what if I hurt them more? Like, what if I hurt this person more? What if, um, you know, like, I didn't even know what could happen, right? I, I just, <laughs> like, the sky felt like the limit, and I, and I kind of was, um, had a lot of trepidation with uh moving with an adaptive athlete. Um, and you quickly realize that when you collaborate with the person that's in front of you, that, um, you know, one, they'll let you know what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Um, and I would say that as an instructor, it's super important to, to like let go of um, needing to like direct the show, right. It's, it's very much a collaborative experience. I think, um, working with an adaptive athlete where, especially initially, like they're going to tell you like, oh yeah, that, that doesn't work for me. Like I can't do that. Right. I can't, um, reach up and grab that thing that you want me to grab because, uh, it, like I know that that's just not going to happen for me. Um, or, you know, like, Hey, can you prop me up while I try to move from one location to the other location? Right. There's a lot of, and I think, um, uh, telling the person that's in front of you in those like initial couple sessions, like, Hey, uh, 
you know, let me know what you need and we can really work together. Like we're in this together. Um, I think was the most important thing for me to realize when I started working with adaptive athletes is that um, there's no one right way to do something. You want to think very much outside the box. And sometimes people that aren't trained to work with adaptive athletes are the most creative and come up with the most interesting things, right? So the Pilates instructor that's never worked with an adaptive athlete has no idea maybe what, you know, those that group of Pilates instructors who always works with adaptive athletes, they have no idea what they do on a regular basis. Um, and so there's this like it's wide open, right? You can do whatever you want. And maybe you come up with something that's like super amazing and creative and, you know, ticks all the boxes for the body that's in front of you. Um, you know, I, and there are some things that I think are important to know, you know, before you work with an adaptive athlete, like, if the person ha- is a neuroadaptive athlete and they have trouble regulating their temperature, like, what does that mean for you as an instructor? Like, what do you need to, like, make sure that they have water or make sure that the environment they're in is not, doesn't get too hot? Um, so there are some things that I think are, are helpful to know, but I also usually the person who you're with will say, like, hey, I can't <laughs> sit around in... Right. Yeah. Uh, intense heat for a long time because I have problems regulating my temperature. Um, yeah. Can I, can I ask a couple, uh, two, there's actually three things I want to ask you about there. The first, and I'm just going to ask all three and then you can kind of, maybe the answers blend in together. The first one is just about alignment, right? So just say, you know, I'm used to queuing, say we're doing four point kneeling right? And I'm used to cueing everything be straight, shoulders in line with wrists, shoulders, hips in line with knees and shoulders, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm working with someone who's missing an arm from above the elbow, right? So their four-point kneeling is, well, number one, it's three-point kneeling, okay? And number two, they're probably going to have to have their their arm more in the centre of their, you know, they're going to form a tripod with their, their knees and their arm, right? So all of those cues about lengthen through both sides, blah, 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 the things that we normally say, probably aren't going to apply to that person. And I imagine that's going to be similar in a whole bunch of, you know, range of situations. So so there's that. Okay, so, you know, how do we sort of adjust our kind of normal alignment kind of thinking and, and cueing? Second one is just mechanics, right? So just say I've got an above-the-elbow amputee and I'm teaching arms in straps. Like, well, how do we do that? Like, what do you, you know, how do you, how do, you do that with someone who doesn't have a hand to grab the strap? Um, or... Uh, and the third one is um, asking, que- you know, I guess sort of drilling more into what you just said about kind of asking questions at the start. And so, for instance, if somebody's got a spinal cord injury, you know, um, depending on which level their spinal cord injury is at, they may or may not have use of things like their abdominals or their hip flexors or their lower back muscles. And so it's like, okay, well, asking like, well, can you actually sit up from lying on your back or do you need my help with that? Or, you know, is that something you want to work on? Or, um, you know, so sort of, um, I guess, sort of understanding the parameters of their capability and their, their goals, you know, within, because spinal cord injury is not one thing, right? It's different. Someone with a, a C3 
injury is very different to someone with, say, a T, T6 injury. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, so alignment, just the mechanics of how do you how do you grab a strap if you don't have a hand? Or, you know, even if you can figure out a way to grab the strap, well, you've got one arm that's half the length of the other, so how do you equalise the tension on the ropes? You know, <laughs> so, yeah, could, so what do, what do you, how do you, how do you respond to all of that? Yeah, awesome. Those are great questions. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to start from the bottom up. So spinal cord injury, um, and yeah, no, no two spinal cord injuries are the same, right? Even with somebody who has, um, like two people come in with a C6 spinal cord injury, like they might not, they may be even, um, very different from each other. Um, and so, yeah, understanding what the person is capable of, um, is a little bit of trial and error. Um, so there is a, a group, um, or a network, um, of Pilates instructors who work primarily with spinal cord injury, um, athletes in the Bay area. That group is called zebra fish neuro. Um, and it was started by a Pilates instructor, Stephanie Comella, and one of her clients who is a, I think he's a C-level, um, spinal cord injury athlete. And, um, the way that they kind of move through, uh, movement sequences for, um, SCI athletes follows, um, are you familiar with DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization? I think it was uh, it was a method that was developed in the Czech Republic, I think, um, with Pavel Kolar. I might be saying his name wrong. Anyway, it's like it's a movement sequence and a method that like follows the developmental sequence of a baby through toddlerhood. So. You know, we. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, yes, first, first you crawl and then you right. do something. Yeah, I'm, I've, exactly. I've, I've, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept. Yeah. yeah. So they use kind of that as a guideline for a lot of um, their SCI athletes. Um, and so they kind of, you know, move through um, can you lie on your back? I mean, most, most SCI athletes um, really benefit from getting out of their wheelchair. Not all SCI athletes are going to be in a wheelchair, but if, if that is their primary means of, of movement, um, getting out of a chair is, is really important and really nice. And so a Pilates session is uh, a really good way to do that. Um, usually, you know, you put down a mat and you get some props and you just lay on the ground. Um, and, you know, you start with maybe a rolling sequence or this is how zebrafish neuro kind of goes through their, their movement sequences. Um, starting with, you know, the most basic thing that our nervous system can do in babyhood or in infancy, um, and trying to develop from there, you know, depending on the level of injury and movement capacity, um, you know, you might, an athlete who has a, a high level 
um, cervical spinal cord injury is not going to have a lot of movement. Um, and so you might stay at a very kind of like basic level of movement for a, a really long time forever. Right. Um, but you know, when you sit down and develop those initial goals with that client or the person that's in front of you, um, we may assume as able-bodied people that their goals are really centered around like walking or regaining functionality. Um, but often that's not really what a lot of adaptive athletes, SCI athletes are after is they're just, um, most goals center around improving independence, improving their ability, ability to perform, you know, basic activities of daily living. Um, and so for a lot of folks, that means, um, just feeling better in their bodies and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, with movement. Um, but yeah, did that answer that question? Yeah. I kind of, then, then that was a long-winded. No, no, that's great. Um, I so think that's really powerful, Cody. I thought that was amazing. Awesome. Yeah, then there's the, the questions about al just like alignment. How do, we how do we rethink the way we think about alignment when dealing sure. with somebody who's maybe got a, an upper or lower limb amputation or some other, you know, situation? And then finally, just the mechanics of like, how do you do legs and straps with someone with only one leg or, you know, whatever it might be? Right, totally. Um, so <clears throat> alignment, yeah, it's such an interesting thing when, um, I mean, I held really, really tight as a Pilates instructor, held really tightly <laughs> on two ideas of alignment for so long um, and still catch myself like trying to like push a lot of that stuff out of my head when it's not necessary. Um, but yeah, you are, you know, if you have a client who is an above the elbow amputee, right, and you want to do something like four point kneeling, it's, it's going to be three point kneeling and, you know, they're going to, so I, I, this is how I, um, for all of my clients, I give them like kind of order of operations, like task number one, um, balance on one foot or like task number one, stay on the ball that you're balancing on, right? Don't fall off. That's just task number one, right? So, and it has nothing to do with alignment or um, quality of movement or anything that we, me, myself as a Pilates instructor, kind of held as uh, the goal for most of my Pilates career, right? Um, and so I have learned to prioritize just the task rather than the alignment. So if I want somebody to be in four-point kneeling and they're an above-the-elbow amputee, um, one, I might give them a prop to, like, like a stack of yoga blocks to rest the residual limb on um, so that they, you know, could feel that four-point kneeling position. Um, but it's also not the end of the world, right? If they had a hand 
more towards the center. Um, and we're kind of like a little bit more weighted on one knee than the other, right? Because what I want them to do is just to, to, to feel that hand and knees position without necessarily thinking about the alignment. So just complete the task, right? Just, just think about the task to be done. Um, and I think that that can be really powerful for not just adaptive movers, but for, for able-bodied people as well, right? Just like we can think about, or you can think about the, you know, whether your hips are level or not, if you want to, but also like, does that improve your experience of this movement or does that improve your experience of this position or does it just make you feel like you're unable to complete task number one when, you know, uh, you're trying to think about keeping your hips level when really the only goal is just to, you know, find this position and stay in this position. Um, uh, and, and in fact, keeping your hips level might actually make it harder or impossible to do the task because hips level is predicated on having two lower limbs and two upper limbs where the weight is evenly distributed. And if, and I love uh, one of the uh, people that you link to on your social media, Logan Aldridge, who's an adaptive athlete in CrossFit, and we'll link to him in the show notes, but he does amazing one – he's a one-armed athlete and he does amazing clean and jerk weightlifting. So he's lifting, you know, from the looks of things, about his body weight, you know, above his head with one arm from the floor, which is just incredible. But you can't do that with your body straight, right? He has to get the the weight, the centre of mass of the weight over the centre of his base of support, which means he has to be kind of leaning a little bit to the side, you know. And so if your cue to him was keep your hips level, it's like, well, that just makes it totally impossible for him to actually complete the movement. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like a, it, it's kind of a fantastic like exercise in experimenting with what works um when you get to work with an athlete like that um there's another crossfit athlete amy bream who is a um above the knee lower limb uh she's not an amputee she was i believe she she's talked about her story um online i think her instagram handle is one-legged warrior um, but she was born with one leg and, uh, you know, I got to watch a lot of folks warm up for the CrossFit games. Cause my area was, uh, right in like the main warm up area for all the, the athletes. And so during the games, you know, she was warming up, um, some lifts. I can't remember what exactly she was doing, but, um, you know, her, her, uh, prosthetic, like sometimes wouldn't bend at the mechanical knee joint and the way that, you know, she was able to, to figure out how to pick the weight up off the ground and get it over her head, you know, doing something like a clean and jerk where, you know, you need to bend your knees to pick the weight up and you also need to receive the bar in a bent knee position, right? And her knee, like her mechanical knee wouldn't always bend and her coach would like come up behind her and like kind of push the knee sometimes to, to get it to bend. Yeah, um, I saw her doing some and the mechanical knee not bending because I'm following her eagerly on eagerly on social media. She's a bloody legend. She's a beast. And 
she's just amazing. And I just also love her vulnerability. Like she put up the videos of her crying, you know, with frustration. Um, But also that, that sense of pushing through that ultimate frustration and, and coming out on top. But I noticed how, yet yeah, the leg wasn't bending, so she'd kind of just slide it straight out mm-hmm. and she was right. still getting the, the lift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like – She's amazing. You know, I mean – I love her so much. She's so great, yeah. And, and it, it is – you know, when you watch athletes like her, you watch athletes like Logan Aldridge um, – and you're like, oh, okay, they're just they're just getting the task done. Yeah. Actually, like I watched her learning. Oh, sorry, Cody, didn't mean to. No, no, I'm, go ahead. I'm so excited by it. <laughs> I watched her learning to do, she wanted to do handstands. Yeah. Um, and she was doing it without a prosthetic. So if we're thinking about, you know, center of gravity, et cetera. And she said she said she was really, she was actually scared of falling, right? She was scared of falling. And so her coach was like, I need you to fall. So you get over the fear of falling. So it was like once she got, you know, because she'd get upside down and, you know, the weight was of the one leg was constantly pulling her over. And so she said she had to learn to fall. And so falling no longer scared her. And I was like, oh, this is just also <laughs> fucking cool. <laughs> that's, <laughs> like, that's, a great, and, and that's a great TED Talk story, Chloe, when you give your TED Talk. It is. I just, I just love that, and it's like you know, it just. And I love um, Cody. I, I shared the I am adaptive page with Adam Meekins, who we mm. love, and he and then he went on to. Sh- he was like, "Oh my god, what is this page? This is like the best thing ever." And I said, "Well, you, you got Cody to thank for for sending me in in that direction." And he put up a post and said, "Every single person who works with someone in regards to movement or rehab needs to be following this page. And the next time you think about trying to correct someone's bloody scapula, or you know, say that their hip is slightly out of alignment, or and that's the cause, the root cause of their, you know, <laughs> low back pain, you know, check yourself. Like really, check yourself because it's yeah. outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's." Um it's pretty awesome to, to watch these athletes, uh, you know, how do you feel when you're there? So you, you got to, you were assisting, weren't you? The last, um, uh, adaptive CrossFit games. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so this is the very first year that there were adaptive divisions at the CrossFit games. Um, there have been, uh, independent, CrossFit competitions that have included adaptive divisions for a while. Like I think <clears throat> Wadapalooza um, that's held in uh, Miami every year has included uh, adaptive divisions for quite a while. Um, but this was the first year that they were included in um, the qualifying um, rounds of competition. So like the CrossFit um, whole, the CrossFit season starts with the CrossFit Open, which is like a worldwide competition for everybody. Like anybody can join it, um, regardless of your level or experience or anything, right? You can sign up and you do the workouts that are put out by CrossFit headquarters. You do them at your home gym and you log your scores. Um, and then you're, you're put on a worldwide leaderboard of everybody who is participating in the CrossFit Open. And then the field is narrowed down from there. 
So until, you know, you, you qualify for the CrossFit Games themselves, and, and then that's the main um, final competition. It's like the, you know, the Olympics of CrossFit. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was the first year that adaptive divisions were uh, in the CrossFit Open and um, were then in the CrossFit Games. So I, I have, so CrossFit started in Santa Cruz. <laughs> um, and so the gym that I go to, the CrossFit gym was the very first CrossFit gym that ever was. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, That's cool. It's yeah. It just kind of happened to be in my neighborhood and it happened to be the one that I went to. And, you know, I just have developed a, a great community of people there and I love it. Um, Subsequently, or, or coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, a lot of the folks that work at CrossFit headquarters um, also go to the gym that I work at. And so uh, there were, we, we have seasonal employees that kind of like come on during the CrossFit Games season just to help with the volume of work that needs to be done. Um, so since maybe 2018, I've been a, a seasonal employee um, or a seasonal contractor, I guess. I haven't been an employee um, for the CrossFit Games. Um, and that usually carries all the way through uh, to the games themselves. Um, and so I was, when when we are at the games as um CrossFit employees, we're, we turn into athlete control, which just means we make sure that all the athletes get to where they need to go when they need to be there. Um, and these are six, 600 plus athletes. Wow. And, we have and you're like all of the ushering them around kind of yeah. situation. <laughs> totally. Bas- I mean, literally ushering them there, around, now. literally going like, you people need to be here right now. <laughs> And I am going to walk you over here in 10 minutes. So that's athlete control. Um, And so this year I was kind of like the point person for the adaptive divisions. So, you know, I would brief them every day. Um, I would email them at night and kind of let them know what their day was going to look like the next day. And, you know, uh, what because I had been kind of communicating with them and working with them all season long. Um, and then at the games themselves, you know, we were already a little bit familiar with each other. And so there were 30 athletes, 30 adaptive athletes at the CrossFit games this year, um, or this past year. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I, I mean, it was a success as, as far as they were concerned, which was <laughs> the, the most important part for us. And how does sure it... They had a, how does it leave you feeling, you know, what, watching such incredible feats of adaptability and physical prowess and, you know, how yeah. does that, like, how does that affect you? As you? I feel like, you know, you, you are a very empathetic, awesome human being. I'm sure, you know, when you have experiences, like, like I'm sure that that sort of sucks into you and, you know, how do you leave feeling from something like that? I mean, it is incredible to watch these athletes perform at such a high level. I mean, like, honestly, all of the CrossFit athletes. Yeah, um, amazing. To watch them 
do these things that, like, I am amazed that human bodies can do. Mm. I mean, talk about grit, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> this, I think CrossFit is a lesson in in grit, and it helps people become grittier, right? Um, I like that. Like, yeah, nobody nobody looks at a CrossFit workout and they're like, oh yeah, that. That sounds like fun. Like that's <laughs> that looks like really that's a good easy. time. <laughs> Everybody knows that it's like you know a, a a few minutes or like twenty minutes of of hell, um, and that you kind of you know you push yourself to places that you didn't think you could necessarily go, and it helps you you know I think develop this mindset of of grit. Um, and that's what I see in a lot of adaptive athletes um, at the CrossFit Games is, you know, they're, they've already developed grit, I think, through life, right? Like, a lot of them have really amazing stories of either how they acquired their impairment or just their journey Um you know, with their impairment through life, like, um, and everybody has a different story. Um, and, you know, some people really like resent the able-bodied world for being like, you're such an inspiration. Um, and they don't want to necessarily be seen in that light. So I try to, Mm. to like check myself when I'm like, Mm. Oh wow, that's so inspiring. Mm. (laughs) And you know, it, it does feel inspiring to me to to watch people who um, are doing amazing things, not just in the adaptive community in CrossFit, but mm. but also, I mean, equally just in the CrossFit community. Mm. Like um, this past year, there was Can, a, a yeah. Uh, is it so? Just on that inspiration. So is there sort of a coupling of of um, the thought that inspiration is going hand in hand with sympathy or something there. Is that, is that where Maybe. that's coming from or? Maybe. Um, Cause it's really hard not to go yeah. to the I am adaptive page and not to be genuinely inspired by it, inspired by grit, inspired by adaptability, inspired by incredible physical prowess. Just right. like you, just like if you go onto someone else's page and you're inspired by, you know, an able-bodied person and you're inspired by their physical prowess or, you know, grit or et cetera. But when you're saying that, it's it's like, oh, do, so th- we need to be mindful of, like, this is great to learn, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, um, I think one that is, you know, like me being an able-bodied person, um, I don't know that I'm the best best person to to um, elaborate on right. that sentiment, yeah. but I do think that there are a lot of ways that able-bodied people can um, kind of be like just spectators and learners, right? About uh-huh. what the adaptive community, like um, you know, terminology that the adaptive that the adaptive community uses. Uh, to, you know, refer to different types of impairments or, um, you know, just to like, I think it's important for, for able-bodied people to just to be spectators about, you know, how the adaptive community would like the able-bodied community 
to respond um, to them. And there, I think there are a lot of great people on social media talking about that kind of stuff um, in particular. Um, there are, and I think that once you kind of like get into some of those uh, adaptive accounts, you know, you start to follow the thread and you'll, you'll start to follow folks who are maybe a little bit uh, more vocal about the politics of being adaptive in an able-bodied world um, and how difficult that can be, um, even though there is a lot more awareness about accessibility. Um, you know, and, and I think those are some of the ways that we as movement instructors can um, be really... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We can really embody that in how we open our space to adaptive athletes and adaptive movers, um, in how we understand accessibility. Um, are we, you know, are, are, is our equipment far enough apart from each other that it allows space for wheelchairs to pass through. Um, are doorways in our facilities wide enough? Do, do we have accessible bathrooms? That kind of stuff. Um, things that, you know, we might not walk through as able-bodied people walk through an able-bodied world and think about the fact that, like, if there is a cabinet underneath a sink in a bathroom, it's really hard for a wheelchair to pull up to that sink and wash their hands. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, I feel like I'm learning constantly from the adaptive community about, um, you know, how we can be more helpful as, as able-bodied people. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't think that everybody, every adaptive person is going to be like, Oh, don't call me inspiring. Cause that's super patronizing or, you know, whatever the sentiment is there. I think that's, you know, that's the way that some people feel and, and not necessarily the way that other people feel. Um, and I think that those conversations are, are important to have between, you know, able-bodied people and adaptive, uh, folks. Um, where, you know, when we start to interact more in each other's, or when we as able-bodied people start to interact more in an adaptive athlete's world, you know, we suddenly just become aware of these things because, you know, we're, we're listening to them. And, you know, as movement instructors, like, it is our job to be empathetic and, you know, to provide a safe space and a collaborative space for everybody who walks into our studio um, or our movement space. Um, and I think that you just, you know, you're, you're opened up to a whole different world and perspective when an able-bodied or when a, an adaptive person comes into your, your studio. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Cody. I think that's yeah. a good place uh, to take a short break. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. Um, so one of the things that struck me be before the break, uh, Chloe, actually, is I just had a little meta moment and thinking about you and I and um, the, you know, the, the fact that I'd been just super focused on asking Cody about all the mechanics or what, how do you cue alignment? What do you do for arms in straps? You know, how do you, 
what do you do for someone with an uh, you know above the waist spinal cord injury when they're getting up off a table you know and and you're all like oh how did that make you feel you know when you're working with (laughs) adaptive athletes (laughs) um and yes i just thought that was you know i just noticed that about us that um i thought that was (laughs) interesting i'm definitely about the feeling (laughs) that's why you two make such a good pair Cody was was comfortable in in both realms. Yeah, and Cody, you've just got such, I don't know, I feel like I learn something from you every time we interact. Um, You're such a great teacher and you have um, such a kind way of showing all the perspectives and, and yeah, you, you get me thinking without making me feel like, you know, I've, I'm wrong to have thought that or to ask that or to, yeah, you've, you're very, you've got a very unique um, talent for that. Uh, lucky Breathe education crew who are going to get to learn from you. You're, you're really quite exceptional. Um, but anyway, that was my fangirl Cody moment. <laughs> I feel like I'm the lucky one. <laughs> I, I really do want to go back to this question because it is bugging the heck out of me about just mechanics, right? So Yeah. Can, can I ask someone. before you do jump into that, Raf? just because I feel like it's looping in. As you were asking Cody those questions about, you know, what do I do if if I've got an amputee or this and that, and we're thinking about the equipment, well, my mind went back to all the, and I don't know if they're tall tales, it's hard to kind of know with our mate Joe Pilates, isn't it? But wasn't a lot of the, the like the, the sort of the, the story, and I know maybe if you type it into Wikipedia, it's maybe the Wikipedia story, was that Joe Pilates was in fact working with adaptive clients post-World War One uh, in regards to amputations, et cetera, from the war. Well, that's how the story goes. Whether he made that up or whether that was true, I think is kind of murky. Whatever happened with Joe Pilates before he got to New York is kind of like, to know but that's the story right so I I mean I used to tell the story Raph before I knew to say hey this might be the story as opposed to this is the story the old bed springs you know yeah well and that that in fact like if we think about like the bednasium um which was sort of the precursor to the Cadillac and it was about well okay if we've got someone laying in bed um post amputation that you can have one strap you know put on the other foot and that that was the whole kind of yeah like I don't know I'm kind of going back to that with it and going well when we're looping now back into Pilates and working with adaptive clients was there something about you know the inception of Pilates that was in you know I don't know I'm conjecturing but that's where I'm thinking and I'm thinking well is it that weird to think like you know you just do the thing well they grab the strap with the other hand or they grab I mean what what's your take on it Cody? Yeah. I mean, I think that, so kind of answering Raph's question and, and, um, Chloe's at the same time. Um, I think that's kind of what makes Pilates special in the adaptive, you know, I don't know if you want to call it rehab or just movement, right. The adaptive movement world is that, um, the, I like that adaptive movement world. I like that. Yeah. Adaptive movement world. Right. Me too. Um, I think that the equipment, particularly, um, you know, like the Cadillac or the trap table or whatever we're calling 
that piece of equipment these days. I really like the, the bednasium. I've n- actually never heard that word. Oh, really? I'll get you a copy so of the awesome. prototype. I'm pretty sure it's in, it's probably in cage line. I'll nice. link to uh, the YouTube clip in the uh, show notes. It's pretty where, awesome. where he comes so out, like awesome. he puts the, he rolls the blanket down and he starts doing the hundred. I totally yeah. haven't yeah. seen that one. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that the Pilates equipment offers a really unique opportunity for adaptive movers to experience um, the ability to do things movement-wise that maybe another movement modality or space does not offer. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity for support right like uh, the reformer honestly is i probably work with adaptive clients least on the reformer just because it is not quite as accommodating um for let's say raf's example you have somebody who's an above the elbow amputee and you want to do um hands and straps one, if they're open to wearing their prosthetic, um, which a lot of folks don't really want to wear the prosthetic when they're, you know, doing some movement because it can be quite uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is really important to work as much of the remnant of that limb that's there as possible and to work as much of the musculature around that remnant as possible. Um, and so, you know, if they're, if they're open and willing to work with their prosthetic, that would kind of be like, okay, like let's do hands and straps with your prosthetic then, and then, you know, take it off right afterwards. Um, or, you know, you could, and I think this is where if you're not trained, trained, um, to work with adaptive athletes where you can get really super creative and very much collaborate with the body in front of you where you're like, okay, well, I have this idea. Like, what if we took this, um, you know, strap or like rubber band or, you know, um, what are those things called? The, the like elastic TheraBand type things, right? Any kind of like elastic band, right? And you're like, what if we wrapped it around the, uh, back end of the reformer here and we wrapped it around the remnant of your limb here and you do you know hand and strap over here and you move the band over here with your remnant um there is there is no like one answer um other than you want to move both sides as much as you can, um, as equally as you can. Um, and sometimes maybe that's like, okay, we're going to do, you know, hands and straps on one arm over here. And now we're going to move to a different piece of equipment and we're going to figure out how to move the other arm in a similar way, but we're just going to use other stuff. Um, that's such great, such great advice. And I could see how the Cadillac would, would lend well to that. Right. And also being higher as well than a reformer. So yeah. potentially easier to get on and off. Right. 
Exactly. And, you know, because, like, if you're working with a, a, a spinal cord injury athlete, sometimes, like, a um, high-level spinal cord, spinal cord injury athlete, like, uh, one of my clients right now is a C-level athlete, and um, he's a big guy, and um, it's it, I have to move him, um, you know, from the floor back to his chair at the end of a session or, um, you know, help transfer him from the floor up to the Cadillac or, you know, and it's, um, it's a lot, right? Like it's, um, I'm, I'm like, I need to figure out how to pick up a human, (laughs) um, with, (laughs) who's like pretty much twice the size of myself. Um, and so having, you know, something that is maybe more the height of his chair is a little bit easier to transfer, you know, him to the Cadillac. Um, but, you know, we, we work it out. And he, uh, he helps me a lot. He's like, okay, no, if you, you know, move my chair a little bit more over here. Like, this is going to be easier for me to roll out of my chair and onto the floor or, you know, like I very much let him kind of direct the show and he lets me know where he wants me and how I would be most helpful. And then you kind of get a rhythm with the person and you can be like, oh, okay, like this is a little bit easier for both of us. Great. Like this is how we're going to do this. Um, but yeah, the Pilates equipment and specifically the Cadillac or the springboard or even the Coraline, um, which is a, a newer piece of equipment, um, what, are what's really the cor- what 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 I don't think I've heard of that before. What what does it look like? What does it do? The Coraline is a piece of equipment that was developed by Balance Body, I think, um, and it looks like a gymnastics ladder, like a stall bars ladder. Oh, yep. And then it has like these movable like sliders on the floor. Yes, sliders. I know what you mean. Yes, mm-hmm. and so for. Um, a lot of folks, it's, you know, you, you can get them standing with support, um, holding onto the ladder bar and, you know, kind of like go through the movements of gait. Um, right. Yeah. It, I mean, and a lot of people who are working with um, SCI athletes in the Pilates sphere are, are well, not even in the Pilates sphere, but like just in the general exercise sphere, um, are coming up with their own, like, not pieces of equipment, but they're like, kind of like duct taping (laughs) different things together and not really duct taping. Right. But they're like, okay, let's like use a ball here and then tie a yoga strap around that. And then let's put the arc here. And then this will support you in, um, a way where you can go from a low kneel to a high kneel. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you're just trying to work on hip extension mm-hmm. for an athlete that sits in a chair all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of like there's not there's not a ton of um, equipment out there that hasn't been developed by adaptive athletes for adaptive athletes. Um, but I think that market is growing um, in certain spheres mm-hmm. where you can see like. If you follow Logan Aldrich, who Raph mentioned earlier online, um, he has a lot of really interesting uh, ways that he shows how he works out um, both limbs. Um, 
Yeah, some and you may have seen lifting some... with a little strap on his shoulder, and I've seen him doing kind of handstand push-ups with a a, a box under his right. uh, remnant limb. Yeah, so some really, and then just kind of does one hand, other hand, or other arm, you know, kind of swaps. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, and then you'll, you know, look at somebody else's page who has the same impairment and they might be doing something that's totally different or like have come up with, you know, uh, a different piece of equipment and they're like, oh, this is what I found that works. And so there's a, um, like, I think it's really exciting to, to kind of watch how that sphere grows. Um, and there is a company, I believe that, uh, primarily focuses in the CrossFit sphere, but that develops adaptive equipment like jump ropes and um, those straps that you saw for deadlifting and stuff like that. So there's some really neat, neat, innovative things that are happening uh, in that realm. Um, And I think that it's also a possibility in the Pilates realm. It just isn't, um, no one has done it quite to the extent I think that uh, it is, currently in the CrossFit sphere, developed those those pieces of uh, assistive equipment. Hey, there's just uh, one thing that I want to ask you about, and it, it feels to me like we're almost at time, but you know, maybe there's something else, Chloe, you want to talk about as well. But um, something that I know you've got an interest in, and I also have an interest in, is phantom limb pain. Um, we, we talk about it in our diploma, and why we're interested in it is because uh, there's a couple of research papers I've seen that show that up to 85% of amputees experience mm. phantom limb pain. So it's like super common. Basically, it's the norm for the overwhelming majority of people, uh, which is pain in the limb that's amputated. So you've had an above-the-knee amputation, so you have no knee, but you have knee pain in your amputated knee. And and a lot of people experience it, according to the research that I've read anyway, that's like it's the same old sort of arthritic pain that they had in their knee before it was amputated and it's worse in the cold, just like it was before wow. the limb was amputated. <laughs> and, yeah, so I wonder, um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts or experiences on, on this phenomenon. Yeah, it's so interesting And I'm always trying to think about it in terms of like just how we talk about like pain in the entire population, right? Like it's uh, how we, yeah, super interesting. Um, I, so, you know, most of my experience is with like reading research, um, and then also just like talking to people who have experienced it. Um, a lot of folks that I've talked to have experienced it like <clears throat> closer to when they had their initial amputation. Um, and in those, you know, like it, I, I don't know the exact percentage of people or when that phantom limb sensation starts to diminish, but in a lot of people, it does start to diminish over time. Um, and the, the pain, it can be pain, right. Or it can be itching or it can be like any sensation, right. Sensations of movement or sensations of like bugs crawling on your limb, you know, like all kinds of different things. Um, and Gee, that would be horrible. Imagine having like an itchy foot. That my, you, terrible. My grandmother, 
My grandmother yeah. last last year had her one of her toes amputated. She's got diabetes and um, ex- she'd lost um, some um, what am I uh, blood flow, etc. Circulation and yeah. circulation. That's what I'm looking for and. Um, she'd had an excessively itchy toe. The toe that got amputated was excessively itchy before it got amputated and then it got amputated and now she just, she's so cranky about it because, and fair enough, because she's got this bloody itch that she can't scratch now. Yeah. And she says it's intense. This is why I'm really fascinated by it and why we talk about it in the diploma is because it's it. There's parallels there with us, you know. So, chopping the toe off didn't fix the itch in the toe, right. and and it's the same thing phenomenon we see in people with back pain. So when we when when we chop out the disc or fuse yeah. the vertebrae or or whatever it might be, mm. it's like there is no body part there anymore, but it still hurts, you know. Or we mm. we do radio frequency denervation or you know whatever it might be. It's like there's no nerves in there anymore, but it still hurts. And so that's why I'm really interested in this phenomenon of phantom limb pain because obviously the pain, you know, if you've, if you, you know, the itch in your grandma's case is no longer coming from the toe, right? Because there ain't one. So yeah. where where was it coming from all along? You know, and it, it's obviously it's occurring in the central nervous system, right? And so that's that's the thing with phantom limb pain as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm fascinated by the the whole. So are there thing, any think, studies yeah. as to how to like so we we know it's a thing do we know is there anything we can do about it so from what i've read um and raf you can correct me on this if you know uh more than i do about this um so there was a uh, dr ramachandran uh started studying mirror therapy um and it is, I think, a, a really common uh, treatment for, or or attempted treatment for um, phantom limb sensation, um, which is basically just to take the intact limb, put a mirror next to the intact limb, and watch the intact limb move. For some people, like the systematic reviews that I read about mirror therapy are that it seems to be an effective treatment, but there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. And that's kind of, you know, maybe the story with pain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that, you know, there's no, I mean, research doesn't have a great explanation of why phantom limb pain occurs. Right. Um, You know, there's a lot of theories out there about cortical remapping and that the way that the body processes incoming sensory information and then outputs that um, it is somehow dysfunctional within the brain. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just not a great explanation about why it occurs or the mechanism by which it occurs uh, in, in people. But, um, and I think that mirror therapy is, I mean, something that I think Pilates people have also talked about uh in the neurological sphere of like um, maybe Mariska Breland, who does the um, Pilates for neurological conditions. Um, I don't know what they teach, but in their uh, courses, but um, I know that for a while that was something that 
people in the Pilates sphere, maybe in the rehab sphere, were, were using um, not necessarily in the phantom limb pain realm, but more in the like, you know, uh, restoring neurological deficits in um, one limb as compared to the other limb. There's, yeah, there's just not a, a, a ton of great research that gives us any conclusion about what works. Um, I'm trying to think if I work. hook up a little mirror for Nan and we scratch her other toe. Yeah, whether that might maybe whether it might help bless her because it's <laughs> I just can't imagine how frustrating that would be it's yeah. unbelievable yeah. <laughs> having something that itches is annoying enough let alone I something you can't get to in the case of pain Cody you you know you're spot on it's like the research is very patchy and you know it doesn't is not conclusive basically we don't have a definitive answer for any form of <laughs> pain basically phantom or otherwise um but I, you know i think phantom limb pain is such an amazing illustration that of the 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 reality that pain is not in the body part where you experience it you know because you can experience freaking pain when there is no body part so <laughs> the pain's not in the body part <laughs> the pain's happening in your brain and that's the same when you have an intact body part with pain in it the pain is still happening in your brain and so i would imagine you know that the things that could be effective for phantom limb pain uh would be the same things that would be effective for you know people with regular old low back pain or hip pain or whatever which would be all of those things like you know general physical activity and sleep and addressing stress and mental health and general physical resilience and social support and all of those other things and with the addition of maybe mirror therapy but i mean actually mirror therapy is being used in for regular limb pain as well mm. so uh, you know people with above the elbow amputations still have a brain the same as everybody else so mm -hmm. <laughs> right and it's you know like those those sensory signals are still coming in and the right. brain is still trying to put out motor signals right, right. um yeah i think it's a i think that there can be a a, a lot that's you know, gleaned from just kind of how the body uh, deals with pain in general yeah. that we could apply to that and vice versa. Is there anything else, Chloe, that you want to talk about? I think that, no, I think that was awesome. I've learned a, a lot from this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will as well. It was, yeah, thank you for sharing all of that with us, Cody. It's so cool. I really You're appreciate so it. Welcome. I feel like That's... I'm learning about a, a realm I knew, like, honestly, very little about. Um, so yeah, this is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Cody. This is this is so great, and um, what a great job we we get to just talk to awesome people and learn things from them all the time. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, thank you for having this, this... me. I really really um, appreciated it. I had such a good time talking with you both. Let's. Let's let's do the um, Europe Europe friendly version now. Cody, it hasn't been too terrible talking with you. And Chloe, you're not such a bad co-host. Thanks, thanks, Raf. You're all right. <laughs> and, and, and I've had worse. I've had worse jobs than this. <laughs> no, I think you know what, Raf. I reckon we should just be ourselves and say that was fucking awesome. And Cody's fucking awesome. Yes. And. Fuck yeah. I'm trying to be inclusive. That's how I'd prove it. 
<laughs> I'm really excited that I got to see the the hand movements that went with fucking awesome <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> yes. That was how I always pictured it in my head, but I'm glad that it was confirmed in real life. We we didn't we didn't do any eurythmies, so um, we won't go into it all now. But Cody yeah. and I are both both Steiner Rudolph Steiner kids, so um, we've got that in common, which yes. may or may not explain some stuff. <laughs> Probably it just how awesome we all. are, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> it explains how totally awesome we both are. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I agree, mm-hmm. Cody. Well, thank you, thanks, Raph. Good talk, you too. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing, and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.